Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Hello and welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name's Steve Barrett. I'm the editorial director of PR Week and I guide you gently through another show. The last one before Thanksgiving. We won't be having a show next week for the holiday week. So uh, make the most of this, folks. It's the uh, last one for two weeks. And don't you just love it when your guest cancels one hour before your scheduled recording, having had it in the diary calendar for months and having worked on putting it together since January? Anyway, no names, no pack drill. But we have got someone even better than our planned guest. We've got Sabrina Sanchez with us, who's our reporter, star reporter on PR Week and Campaign covering the Gen Z beat, youth marketing, diversity. How are you doing, Sabrina? Good to have you on the show. I'm doing great. I'm having a sugar rush from the Worksgiving we just had. We, we just had our Worksgiving, that's true. We're all we're all on a bit of a sugar rush high, aren't we? And Frank Washcook's here, our executive editor. Are you on a sugar high, Frank? You're always on a sugar high, aren't I, you? I am, yeah. It's, uh, you caught me. I'll be extra productive this afternoon. Yeah. I crash. Well, I might just be asleep at my desk, but um, yeah, like after the Thanksgiving uh, turkey dinner, but uh, we had a nice turkey sandwich and a bit of pumpkin pie for those who like that, and a glass of wine for those who uh, liked it, and some some pumpkin-flavoured beer, so yeah. So uh, yeah, so it's going to be a slightly different show because we don't have a normal guest, but we're going to talk through a bunch of stories. We'll talk about Edelman's response to Big Oil and some new hires over there. The unprecedented war for PR talent. Crazy times. We did a nice analysis piece on that. Thanksgiving campaigns, including the Reese's Pie, which sold out. Um, great image of that on our website. If you, it makes you feel hungry when you look at that. Bunch of big corporations splitting up into con- constituent parts. Bit of a trend there. We'll talk about that. Communicating around the infrastructure bill. And we might touch on Dave Portnoy and Business Insider. They're having a bit of a spat. Um, and um, Portnoy, who uh, founded and runs Barstool Sports, has come back uh, punching. You know, he's really coming back rebutting a crisis. Interesting crisis uh, Tom's response. But let's first of all talk about a poll that uh, we've been running on LinkedIn, Sabrina, talking about the future of work. I mean, that's top of mind for everyone, isn't it? Are we, you know, uh, when we're getting toward the end of 2021 and many companies are going to have policies in place from January, but from from what we're gathering, but we don't really know what it's going to look like, do we? Because we've got, you know, we've got our own arrangement here, which is voluntary, which essentially means nobody comes in unless there's a Thanksgiving uh, dinner, a free food and booze. So what is the, tell us about this poll and tell us what it's saying. Yeah, so I started this poll two days ago to build off of a story that I wrote eight months ago where I asked agencies what they were doing for back to the office plans. A lot of them said they hadn't really figured it out yet or they would try to have people come back in um, on a mandated couple days a week schedule, um, you know, hybrid. But I just had a hunch. I'm like, I don't really think people are on the same page about that anymore. So ran this poll two days ago asking people, what is your ideal working situation? And I've gotten 443 votes so far. The poll is still running. There's 21 hours left. And from that poll so far, 59% say that they prefer non-mandated hybrid, meaning office is open if you want to come in, 
but you don't have to. The second highest response is also fully remote. So I think that's pretty clear. The office is dead. <laughs> that's a big, that's a big conclusion, Sabrina. Um, but yeah, you might well be right. Um, Frank, we've been doing a lot of coverage of this, haven't we? And um, it's, it's interesting you said that you started that convo eight months ago, Sabrina, because you know things change with the different phases of the disease and then the vaccinations etc vaccinations have really moved on a, a pace you know there's a lot of stories about the pills uh, Merck and Pfizer pills this week but what, what what are you hearing from the market Frank about this it's a big topic isn't it it's not just a PR topic by the way it's it's across everywhere isn't it everywhere every work place of work yeah um, I think this is going to be something we have to revisit in the new year uh, when more companies start to mandate this more closely and also as more people opt for jobs where they can fully work from home and um, you know this great shakeup that we're going to talk a little bit more about later in the podcast um, there's going to be another phase of it earlier in the year uh, because people who want to continue to work from home full time but are mandated to come back from the office are probably going to look to make the switch and so you're going to see that across industries, but I think you're, you're definitely going to see it in the creative industries and, and marketing and PR because uh, all those roles really largely can work from home. Now, of course, you don't get the same level of collaboration, but um, physically you can pull it off. You're not delivering the mail or, you know, working in a factory or anything like that. Um, jumping off of a story I saw this morning, and I wish I could remember the source, but I can't. Um, I am also interested to see which companies move offices and what those new offices look like uh, once they go back. Um, one thing I was reading about is how the pandemic has resulted in fewer leafy corner offices for executives. That was or, a CBRE survey, I think, yeah, you were yeah, referring yeah. to, yeah, which and, was very interesting. You're right. And sort of these more generic offices and rooms like we're sitting in now perhaps that that can be used by somebody for a full day or as a meeting room or or things like that so interested to see how this evolves the workplace i think in general yeah so that was basically saying the corner office is dead i.e yeah. that you know the ceo sitting in the corner office with the best view and the best best location the 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 office will change to encourage people back you've got to provide um you know better kitchen facilities we saw that today free food and booze and people were, were in it was good fun i enjoyed it it's great being around people i mean personally sabrina you cover gen z and you have a gen z perspective yourself do you think there's a generational difference in attitudes here because on the one hand we hear that young people are you know living in apartment shares maybe multiple people in one location where it's difficult and they want to get out but on the other hand when you actually offer them the chance to get back to the office they're not coming in are they yeah, well, I mean, it's a unique perspective because from what I hear and also being a Gen Zer myself, a lot of the Gen Zers entering the workforce now started remotely. Um, and so that office culture, that office environment isn't something that they've been exposed to early in their career. And I think, um, you know, the pandemic has also exposed the fact that we can do a lot of things from home and not even just from home. We can do them from wherever, from a coffee shop, from wherever you're comfortable. Um, and so I think that's something that companies are gonna to have to keep in mind moving forward. You know, maybe the office is a space to convene and gather when necessary, but if it's not necessary, then let people work from where they want to. Well, I just saw you, Hank, sitting at the table in the kitchen with your colleagues, having a, a lovely time chatting, yeah. you know, sharing stories, just hanging with people. Wouldn't you miss that by not being able to come in? 
Well, yes, that's true. And that's part of the comments in this uh, poll. You know, people are saying that there's nothing like in-person collaboration, which is why I think, uh, you know, people are just going to have to rethink the office space. I definitely think it's a space to convene. Maybe it's not something that companies want to get rid of altogether, but they will have to reevaluate if they want to mandate people. I also think, you know, just based off of people's individual circumstances, perhaps mandating is not a fit for everyone. Um, you know, different health situations at home, different circumstances with childcare. There's a lot to work through. Yeah, that's true. Your, your point about people moving offices is a good one, Frank, because you suspect that if a company's lease is up, they're making some big decisions, aren't they? And you they're definitely so. cutting back. You know, there's no way that they're going to have the same size physical yeah. office that they would have done. Others are just tied into long leases. You would think so. Um, and I'm interested in the other physical changes around the office. You know, you guys just talked about kitchens and, and um, you know, that being a way to attract people in. Um, I'm interested in the general working space. I mean, I, I wonder if we have seen the end of the um, the revolving desks the, where, where, where people are not tied to a specific area within the office. Um, I, 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 so I, I'm interested to see how this all shakes out. We might not know for a couple of years. I mean, it depends what everyone's lease is up, I guess. Yeah, you're right. And I mean, I think the benefit of being in the offices and Sabrina, let me know what you think on this, is actually learning by osmosis and being around your colleagues, listening to how they do their jobs, picking up on tidbits, conversations. That's certainly how I learned to be a journalist was listening to reporters in a newspaper newsroom. And I was like, wow, that's how to be a journalist. You know, I really probably learned more in, in a three month placement there than I did in a, in a year doing a, a, an academic course. So do you not fear that that, that element of the creative industries, industries especially might be lost if everybody's working from home mainly? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. I do think that for creative and, and even, you know, PR communications, like a lot of that happens in the office, that just natural bouncing ideas off of each other and just learning from each other. And a lot of creative thinking happens in person. Um, so I think there's an element of that that can't be lost. Um, we've learned to do a lot remotely through the pandemic. And I think there's a lot that can be done remotely, but definitely not everything, in my opinion. And I know, like, personally, I love shouting across the desk to Frank when I have a question. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we all like shouting questions at Frank because uh, we always get a good answer. So but that dovetails ni nicely into the next topic, I think, which is about the unprecedented war for PR talent because uh, we, we did a piece by, with Chris Daniels, our, well, our regular freelancer who's worked remotely with us for 15 years, hasn't he? And so, from a different country. Yeah, and he does a great job. But uh, tell us what that piece said, Frank. It's, it's really just a crazy talent market right now. And uh, there's a great anecdote that he leads with um, in, in which a VP level exec uh, who was open to uh, new work and a new job, um, few agencies made her an offer with significantly higher pay. And she ended up staying where she was, uh, but with a massive $100,000 a year bump in pay. Wow. Yeah, crazy stuff. And the funny thing is when Chris talks to recruiters, they, that is kind of an extreme example. But you do hear a lot of examples of, uh, of people being offered these very, very big raises to stay, to retain talent. Uh, and also companies offering different types of flexibility and um, different ways of working. Um, so they don't lose, uh, they don't lose executives and, and, and folks lower on the food chain than that as well. Um, but it's, I think the great question is whether or not the market has peaked and the recruiters that Chris talked to, 
seem to think it may have peaked and it's on the way down, but that does, it, it's still wild right now. Um, and of course, you know, you just talk to people across the industry and you anecdotally uh, hear these stories. And, you know, at the beginning, it was almost, it sounded too good to be true or too crazy to be true. But now it's, it's universally hearing them everywhere. Yeah. And again, that's another trend that's not, uh, you know, exclusive to PR. Um, in all industries at the moment, there's a talent crunch. I know that from financial services, whether whichever industry you're in, it's the same, and people are desperately seeking good people. I like a piece where we're running with uh, an opinion piece from Jonathan Jordan, who's Edelman's uh, GM of its Southern California office, where he's he says, look, it's time to get over this sort of woe is us, the great resignation, and people don't want to go back to a physical location. We need to flip the narrative and make it more positive and say, okay, certain people have resigned. Maybe many of them have one foot out the door anyway. Let's look at what can be a productive working environment in, an, in a new era. And almost saying that, look, this disruption was coming anyway and that COVID just hurried it on. And I like that um, perspective because... I think we have got to start looking at this from a different angle. We can't just say, oh, woe is us, we, we, we've got a talent crunch on, there's a great resignation, nobody wants to come to the office. We've got to start flipping the narrative to something a bit more positive. What do you think about that, uh, Sabrina? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's going to be a lot of learnings that come from this and eventually, like, the world will adjust um, and things will sort of calm down. But right now, there's it's, it's different stages of this pandemic that we're going through. Um, and so we've we've sort of moved on from the remote stage. We're entering a different stage now, which is just trying to get a new footing on this, you know, modern workplace and modern culture. Um, and eventually things I think will will get back to some sort of new normal. Um, and I know that's like an overused phrase at this point, but I do think that like, you know, we'll come out we'll come out on the other side of this. Another big question I have about it too is and um, maybe there's research that can answer this is is where are these folks going? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I from, wonder that. From the well. PR agency world but also in-house the ones that are leaving are they, are they going to a different type of marketing? Are they going to creative firms? Are they going to technology firms? Um, is there any pattern if they are leaving the PR workforce in mass where are they headed to? Yeah, because we've seen industries like hospitality, you know, the restaurant industries where people have just suddenly that pause, they suddenly thought, why did I, why was I doing this? You know, why was I doing this work, which was, you know, low paid and incredibly stressful long hours. And they've had a chance to pause and, and discover other elements to their life and just thought, hang on, this is not what I want to do. So I think what JJ, who uh, was a member of our 40 Under 40 list, was saying, look, this means you get people coming back with different ways of thinking. Even if they move away, they might come back. I mean, certainly I know uh, Richard Edelman always tries, and we'll talk about them in a minute, always tries to get people to come back to his company when they leave to go and get other skills and uh, yeah it does put more power in the hands of the employee but is that necessarily a bad thing you know and uh, if you can motivate people to um, to come into a, a great working environment with great culture that's what you should be concentrating on so this story is going to run and run but it's a it's a big issue across the whole of business and uh, but, but especially the creative industries Chatting about Edelman, Frank, uh, last week's big story was Big Oil, and they got dinged by this uh, non-profit called Gr Clean Creatives for their work with ExxonMobil, taking the brunt of the sort of anti-PR um, and advertising 
companies working with energy companies post COP26, um, they came out with a response on Monday, didn't they? And also a raft of new hires, some related to that, others not. Yes, they are launching Edelman Impact, which is uh, an initiative that's going to bring together the firm's ESG, sustainability, purpose, and climate offerings uh, and bring them to the forefront of the firm's global business strategy. Um, again, like you mentioned, this this has happening uh, as COP26 wraps up. Um, but also, uh, as Edelman has really been the main target of the Clean Creatives campaign, uh, which teamed up with uh, a load of celebrities and, and influencers uh, that have been applying pressure on Edelman to drop their fossil fuel clients on social media. Now, Edelman has said they are going to do more work that is climate focused. Uh, they're going to use their seat at the table with these oil companies and energy companies um, in a good way and really try to push them forward uh, towards sustainability um, and towards you know a net zero negative impact on uh, the environment. Bringing an interesting quasi-people move, bring on Martin Whitaker, CEO of Just Capital, uh, as a senior advisor, uh, leading Edelman Impact, uh, though he is remaining in his role as CEO of Just Capital, but uh, working with Edelman on this as well. And who does he report into, Frank? Uh, he is... Jim O'Leary, is Yeah, the, yes, uh, that's correct. Corporate uh, practice. Yeah, um, it's interesting. There's a few interesting things about this story. One is that Edelman's getting the, all of the flag when, you know, all of the holding companies and uh, PR firms, big PR firms and advertising firms have energy clients. So it seems strange that they're getting all the flag. Clean Creatives claims that Edelman worked on Facebook digital advertising to for Exxon to uh, try and um, pers- uh, influence the the uh, infrastructure bill and uh, try and trying to push back on elements relating to climate change, which Edelman vehemently denies, by the way. So just making that clear for legal purposes. Um, but uh, Sabrina, what do you think? Is this a generational thing? I mean, the other thing that Edelman says is we don't work on that part of the business at ExxonMobil, but young people might say, well, I don't, I don't care. I just don't want us working. You know, if I don't want my employer working for that type of brand. What do you think? Yeah, it is definitely uh, partially generational. Um, I think like Gen Z is definitely much more aware of the clients that companies work with and you know what they say versus what they actually do. As long as a name like ExxonMobil is on a roster is going to draw you know some attention, raise some eyebrows. Um, but I you know I wouldn't say maybe it's exclusive to just generation you know the younger generation. I think there's a lot of people that care about sustainability. And after COP26, you know like. This is sounding the alarm. Like there's not a lot of time to turn this around, um, and so some really serious action has to be taken. Yeah, and I think that's partly Edelman's argument that we're trying to help these companies make that change, right? And they need help with that. So it's, uh, I think, it's a big issue, and uh, I don't think it's a, a black and white answer to this. But um, uh, do you think, Frank, that Edelman's announcement on Monday is? Uh, it didn't sound like it uh, persuaded clean creatives. Uh, no, so, I think, certainly judging by their their response. No, I think this is um, this is an issue they're going to have to continue to try to navigate, um, and obviously they are going to have to make decisions on new business as it comes up and who they're going to work with in the future and, and who they're not going to work with. Um, and you know it, they're going to make decisions on this as you know and what is in the best interest of the firm and their people. Um, and I, I think that extends beyond oil. I mean, it might extend to a company like Facebook if now that, uh, you know, after the Wall Street Journal investigation. And it'll, it'll 
apply to other types of businesses as well. And, you know, every agency is going to have to do this depending on their culture and their, their appetite for risk. Yeah, it's a good point. Uh, where do you, where does it end? And uh, all of these uh, industry, big pharma, big big oil, big finance, um, you know, all of them have have issues, and that's what that's why they need senior counsel. So yeah, this one will definitely run and run. Uh, we mentioned it's coming up Thanksgiving. So what's uh, are there any interesting campaigns around Frank? And um, tell us about this Reese's pie, which looks very appetising on our homepage at the moment. I can't wait to talk about this Reese's pie. Uh, because it looks great, and uh, I don't eat a lot of this type of stuff, but Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, uh, you can make an exception for. But this one, this this sucker is 3.4 pounds, um, <laughs> and uh, only 3,000 of them were available, and they went, uh, they were all out in two hours. It was 44.99 plus tax, which you could buy from Hershey's website. Um, it, it looks amazing. Uh, look, there's not universal agreement on this uh, on on Twitter, but I think it looks great. I think cutting it, you know, would, would be a challenge without breaking the um, the shell of the whole thing. But it looks great. But on this campaign, this is great. This is great. This is an interesting campaign, and it's extremely earned media driven. That really uh, that really made this work. Um, and Reese sent the pies out to 75 different media outlets under embargo. Did we get one? We didn't, unfortunately. Oh, come on, Reese. What's going on? Somebody got one and they just hopped it it off. I I hope nobody on our team would do that. No, it doesn't sound like our team. Also sent to some super fans, uh, but who are, they made clear, are not necessarily paid influencers, but candy influencers uh, who... um, who are popular within the industry. Um, so whatever they did with this, it worked. Now, granted, they only made 3,000 of them, but, you know, the two-hour sellout um, is pretty impressive. And I think, you know, just anecdotally, it was seemed to be the only thing people were commenting on on Twitter the other day for a few hours. So um, I think it drove buzz for Reese's in a good way. Yeah, for sure. But Sabrina, isn't this just all about promoting big sugar? <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> and Fle- uh, oh, Fleischman Hillard worked on it too. Oh uh, yeah, to give them the appropriate shout out on this. Well, should they be working on Big Sugar? Oh, just pro- just posing that question in light of our previous discussion. Well, it doesn't exactly seem healthy, but I mean, I don't know. I, I love Reese's. I don't know if I would eat a whole pie though. <laughs> I will say, Frank, if you still want one, there's one on eBay right now for five hundred and twenty dollars. Five hundred and twenty dollars. Wow. Okay. wow! I'll send you the link. That's up there with the Kentucky Fried Chicken mm. sun cream, isn't it, from a couple of years ago that Diana Bradley got a very coveted uh, tube of, I believe. A consumer correspondent, yeah. Any other Thanksgiving stuff going on, Frank? Reese's is my favourite. It it, it's it's all, all about way. Reese's, yeah, yeah. well. And there was, no pump, there was no pumpkin flavour either. It was just a, a big version of their peanut butter cup, yeah? No, thank goodness. Yeah, <laughs> I, must admit, I don't quite see the pumpkin thing myself, but hey, I'm just a miserable English person. Um, all right, so massive business stories this yeah. week where with a bunch of big corporations splitting up um, into constituent parts, having actually, yeah, basically reversing what they've spent the last decade or a couple of decades doing. Johnson & Johnson, GE and Toshiba. So what's going on, Frank? You know, they're interesting because they're all, you have this trend happening, but they're all different and they all seem to be slightly for different reasons in that, you know, Toshiba has had a lot of scandals in recent years um, and shareholder activists have been begging the company to 
and really pushing the company to uh, change its oversight, to change the way it manages, and splitting into three companies for uh, is seems to be the response. Um, huge international conglomerate in this case, but speaking of conglomerates, uh, GE, which has, I think most people who follow business would agree, has underperformed uh, for a number of years, uh, is also splitting into three companies. But I think the one that has gotten the most attention this week is Johnson & Johnson, of course, because of the jokes of how are they going to split the name of the company and just Johnson A and Johnson B or whatever. But you... Um, that could go in a number of could, yeah, different directions. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't probably safe for another podcast. Yeah, I wasn't implying that, of course. But um, J&J is going to split its consumer brands off from a company that is going to make its pharmaceutical products. Um and, um, you know, this is interesting because other companies in pharma have have done similar things. So like LaxoSmithKline merged its over-the-counter unit into a joint venture uh, called GSK Consumer Healthcare in 2019. And Merck sold off its consumer business to Bayer AG in 2014 for $14 billion. So the, the splitting of the over-the-counter consumer products uh, and the more specialized pharma is, is not new. Like I said, what's interesting here is the timing with all of them. The market has been good, uh, despite you know some other headwinds on the economy like inflation and supply chain issues. Uh, the market has remained strong. So, uh, and we should also mention, J and J has also been hit with that wave of lawsuits about exactly, the stock yeah. Uh, in in Johnson's baby powder. Uh, the CEO told the journal that that was not part of correct didn't factor into this one. Uh, our colleagues from Connecticut say that GE never recovered. Uh, Byron Kittle and uh, Kevin Zitzman say that GE never recovered from moving its HQ from uh, Connecticut to Boston. Any truth in that, like Frank? A, seems like a coincidence, doesn't it? <laughs> that certainly wasn't handled very well, was it? Yeah. It was like it was it was broken by the Boston Globe and uh, the staffers at GE. GE in Connecticut. It was a bit of a shock to them, shall yeah. we say. So it does seem so they do seem to have gone downhill since then, but uh, uh, maybe that was just a coincidence. But yeah, always interesting seeing um, big business stories like that. And of course, the communications implications are that these split up divisions will all have their own comms heads and comms these teams. These are really interesting follow-up stories when they happen because you you um, you get to see who comes out on top yeah. in the in-house departments. And sometimes it's not always from the biggest department or the biggest unit. Uh, and you get to see the interesting ways in which these groups are split and along what lines and what agencies go where. Yeah, and uh, look, so if you're... a lot of business implications for the folks that we cover. Yeah, if you're heading comms over there like Michael Sneed, do you really want to um, run comms at something a third of the size of what you used to? Just just, mm. just but idly the, speculating. On the other hand, though, you, you could make the argument that even though that company will be smaller, it has all of the household name brands yeah. and, and perhaps more opportunity and less regulation to do that. Band-Aid, Tylenol, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. All right, let's talk about the infrastructure bill. That finally went through, was it last Friday or was it into the early hours? And um, President Joe Biden and uh, uh, Vice President Harris have kind of started a, I wouldn't say it's a victory lap, but they need to get the messaging out there, don't they? So yeah. how have they been doing and with it and how's it gone down? Yeah, so the the victory tour has certainly started. There was an event at the White House um, uh, this week and um, they're, they're sort of on tour now. Uh, the president was in uh, New Hampshire and standing in front of this old bridge uh, that is presumably going to be repaired with funds 
from all of this. Um, there's a lot to uh, there's a lot to this bill, and it's going to push a lot out into the uh, construction and various other industries. Uh, it should result in in a fair amount of jobs. I mean, it, it has real real like blue collar bona fides to it. Uh, I, I do think it's fair to say, just talking to people out there, there is a frustration among as the president's poll numbers have fallen and fallen pretty precipitously. There has been a frustration among Democrats that that the White House has not been doing more to sell accomplishments. Um, and I think part of this is that, you know, they, they may not want to admit this. Every, every president changes the communications function of the White House. And while when Biden came into office, his team went in a more traditional route, you wonder if the one of the impacts of the Trump presidency is that people suddenly expect the president to be constantly selling his accomplishments. And, and obviously Trump oversold a lot of different things uh, and claimed everything was the biggest and greatest and best ever and all of that. But you do wonder if 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 whether Biden or future presidents are going to see this as a sign that they have to constantly be touting their accomplishments 24-7, maybe not necessarily on Twitter the way Trump did it, and maybe not, you know, laced with mistruths everywhere the way Trump did it. But you wonder if there's going to just be a much more aggressive action to selling accomplishments um, than the Biden White House is doing. Though they're out there right now, but I, I think it's fair to say there's been a frustration. Yeah, there's also some whispers that, you know, Vice President Harris was feeling a bit frustrated that she wasn't being given much credit for what she was doing. She'd been given, uh, you know, the, the wrong end of the stick, if you like, in the tasks she had. So yeah. it will be interesting seeing her out there. Sabrina, what do you think? I mean, is this... You know, they need to, to get some positive messaging out there because the presidency, the, the approval ratings are something of an, I don't know if it's an all-time low, but they're, they're, they're in the tank, aren't they? Yeah, um, it's really interesting because I can just tell you anecdotally that that is the consensus, that they're not maybe talking enough about what they have accomplished and a lot of the focus is what's holding them back. Um, and especially in the mainstream media, you know, a lot of it is sort of criticizing this administration and this um, White House for not being able to pass a lot of the bills that they put forward. Um, and so, you know, this this infrastructure bill could be an opportunity for them to change the messaging. It's definitely an opportunity for them to even talk to individual states and talk about what they're accomplishing for each individual state, um, you know, breaking down the infrastructure bill for these different regions and just um, trying to get the message out of what exactly this is going to be put towards and what it'll accomplish. Yeah, for sure. It'll be interesting to see how that goes down, that uh, tour um, promoting the bill. Let's finish with um, a media story. Um, Business Insider did a bit of a hit piece on uh, Dave Portnoy, who's the founder and uh, CEO of Barstool Sports, um, a very fast-growing and, and uh, streaming and um, online media company, very successful. Uh, but Portnoy, you know, he's always divided opinion. You either love him or hate him, I think. But uh, this piece kind of... Uh, made some very serious accusations about his conduct. And um, the bit that I was interested in was the way um, Portnoy and Barstool responded because uh, it, as a crisis PR um, case study, it was kind of interesting. And he went on the offensive. He took a few days, but uh, then he rebutted pretty much every accusation made in the piece and actually made some of the journalism in that piece look pretty, pretty flimsy. The reporter... Um, deleted her, t her Twitter account, or at least deleted a vast amount of tweets from her account, which did, and um, and 
Business Insider, led by Henry Blodgett, who's not no stranger to controversy himself with uh, previous run-ins with the SEC, um, declined to sort of take on the dialogue with Portnoy and, and declined to change the story. So I don't really want to get into the uh, ins and outs of who's right, who's wrong there, but I was just interested in it as a crisis PR response, Frank. Sometimes people just stay silent and let, um, you know, let... Uh, let, let the thing blow over. Sometimes they respond in a very sort of plain legal way. This was a very much getting on the front foot and trying to get get in ahead of the narrative. And as, as Port and I put it, you know, we're we're at, uh, we're in the first inning here. He's he's not going to let this one lie. He's, he was accused of, some, of rape, essentially. So some very serious accusations. And, and frankly, when you watch uh, the rebuttal, uh, you you can see why he's steamed up about this, you know, uh, having something like that out there. So whether you like or, or don't like the guy, you, you can kind of see his point of view on that. But uh, what was your take on it, Frank? Um, I think there are a lot of companies who, and this is according to a New York Post um, article this week about MGM and DraftKings considered doing uh, an arrangement important for a New York sports betting license and backed away uh, because of past erratic behavior by Portnoy. Um, I think there have been a lot of red flags there, um, and I, I am interested to see if sports organizations, leagues, things like that, if you read more about them backing away from Barstool in the future, and that's when I think we will see if the, whether there is a, a real financial impact here. Uh, because of because of this story, but but also because of past stories too. Yeah, part of Portnoy's rebuttal of this was um, actually emails um, that uh, Business Insider had been doing as follow up, saying to a lot of his sponsors, saying, "Are you going to uh, consider working with Barstool in the light of this Business Insider story?" So. Um, you know, that's another big potential commercial impact on the back of this story. Sabrina, what do you, I mean, the digital media world, loads of new um, media companies out there, for example, Inside as part of the German media com company Axel Springer, but they also own Morning Brew, for example. Um, but there's a lot of others, the digital media, streaming media companies, new media companies. Do you think they adopt the same editorial standards that what you might call the mainstream or traditional media did or, or does? No, I mean, I think like in general, media is changing and the practices are changing. Um, you know, even just like from what I've learned, being a part of this industry, things that maybe I learned in school are not the way that it is in real life. Um, and so and it, and it varies from publication, right? Every, every publication may have different code of ethics, uh, different editorial teams. Um, and so, you know, I think with these kinds of things, it has to come from the top down, these instructions and just be very explicit in terms of how you you know, write a story, how you approach a source. Um, and so that that kind of stuff has to be very clear in the guidelines. I think gray areas are not the areas you want to be in. Yeah, I think it's something we talk about a lot of PR Week. And um, certainly, Frank, I know you're um, very assiduous in making sure we follow uh, due diligence and, and uh, you know, we don't put stuff out there that is um, based on rumors, you know, we have to source everything properly. And I, I, I do sometimes think that this world of digital media, social media, there's a lot of stuff that goes out there, which from my me media law training, you just think you can't say that, you know, what, what's your take on that? Uh, yeah. And, and I think I can, I can, um, I can think of one activist situation off the top of my head in which, um, 
a, a group of activist employees at an organization. Um, we're just sort of like reprint had an Instagram account, um, and we're just sort of reprinting hearsay about executives at an organization, um, or just sort of reprinting things that they just didn't like about a company that weren't illegal or weren't unethical, um, but just sort of airing complaints out. And I, I think we all know these things get attention and sometimes they get coverage. Um, but it, 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 you know, in theory, as a media company, you have to be reporting at a much higher standard than that and sourcing and double checking and, and, and all of these things. And, um, you know, I, I think that people in the media don't like to think of themselves as gatekeepers in any way, but there is an element to that in what you choose to go to press with and what you choose not to go to press with. And not everything that is public is necessarily newsworthy. So yeah. um, it, it's a fine line and it requires a lot of judgment or requires some experience. And um, yeah, you would, you, would hope, you would hope the folks at, at media outlets are being a bit more careful. Yeah, because I think in a case you mentioned, they, they got dinged, didn't they, legally? And they, they shut the whole thing down pretty quickly when yeah. they realized the potential repercussions. So um, that certainly concentrates the mind, or despite the fact that it's, uh, it is quite difficult to sue. And that's a, one point that uh, Portnoy was making. Anyway, we'll see how that, that story develops. Listen, thank you, Sabrina, for stepping in at the last minute. Great, <laughs> great stuff. Always good to hear from you and have you on the show. Keep up the brilliant work. Uh, Frank, likewise, thank you so much. Good to see you for Worksgiving. And uh, we will see you in a couple of weeks for the next edition of the PR Week, um, which will be just in the lead up to our Hall of Fame in person in New York City on Monday, the 6th of December. So um, do uh, get your tickets for that. It's going to be a real sort of... Uh, homecoming, a celebration, getting back together, so um, and, and honouring some brilliant PR professionals. And uh, we'll be publishing next week, um, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Frank, I think, but we're not going to be doing our weekly or a coffee break or a podcast next week. Yes. Um, all right, so have a great Thanksgiving, everybody. Have a good break, whatever you're doing, and um, we'll see you on the other side. Take care. We'll see you next time on the PR Week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the PR Week. To find more episodes, visit prweek.com.